Chapter 8 of Planet of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Planet of the Damned by Harry Harrison. Chapter 8 With each second, the noise grew louder, coming their way. The tracks squeaked as the car turned around the rock spire, obviously seeking them out. A large carrier, big as a truck, it stopped before them in a cloud of its own dust and the driver kicked the door open. "'Get in here, and fast!' the man shouted. "'You're letting in all the heat!' He gunned the engine, ready to kick in the gears, and looked at them irritatedly. Ignoring the driver's nervous instructions, Brian carefully placed Leah on the rear seat before he pulled the door shut. The car surged forward instantly, a blast of icy air pouring from the air-cooling vents. It wasn't cold in the vehicle, but the temperature was at least forty degrees lower than the outer air. Brian covered Leah with all their extra clothing to prevent any further shock to her system. The driver, hunched over the wheel and driving with an intense speed, hadn't said a word to them since they had entered. Brian looked up as another man stepped from the engine compartment in the rear of the car. He was thin, harried-looking, and he was pointing a gun. "'Who are you?' he said, without a trace of warmth in his voice. It was a strange reception, but Brian was beginning to realize that Dis was a strange planet. The other man chewed at his lip nervously, while Brian sat, relaxed and unmoving. He didn't want to startle him into pulling the trigger, and he kept his voice pitched low as he answered. "'My name is Brand. We landed from space two nights ago, and have been walking in the desert ever since. Now don't get excited and shoot the gun when I tell you this, but both Vian and Igil are dead.' The man with the gun gasped, his eyes widened. The driver threw a single frightened look over his shoulder, then turned quickly back to the wheel. Brian's probe had hit its mark. If these men weren't from the Cultural Relationships Foundation, they at least knew a lot about it. It seemed safe to assume they were CRF men. When they were shot, the girl and I escaped. We were trying to reach the city and contact you. You are from the Foundation, aren't you?" Yes, of course, the man said, lowering the gun. He stared glassy-eyed into space for a moment, nervously working his teeth against his lip. Startled at his own inattention, he raised the gun again. "'If you're Brand, there's something I want to know.' Rummaging in his breast-pocket with his free hand, he brought out a yellow message form. He moved his lips as he reread the message. "'Now answer me, if you can. What are the last three events in the—' He took a quick look at the paper again. In the twenties? Chess finals, rifle prone position, and fencing playoffs. Why? The man grunted and slid the pistol back into its holder, satisfied. I'm Fossil, he said, and waved the message at Brian. This is Idge's last will and testament, relayed to us by the Nyord blockade control. He thought he was going to die, and he sure was right. Passed on his job to you. You're in charge. I was Merv's second-in-command until he was poisoned. I was supposed to work for Igil, and now I guess I'm yours. At least until tomorrow, when we'll have everything packed and get off this hell planet." "'What do you mean, tomorrow?' 
Brian asked. It's three days to deadline and we still have a job to do. Fossil had dropped heavily into one of the seats and he sprang to his feet again, clutching the seat back to keep his balance in the swaying car. Three days, three weeks, three minutes. What difference does it make? His voice rose shrilly with each word, and he had to make a definite effort to master himself before he could go on. Look, you don't know anything about this. You just arrived and that's your bad luck. My bad luck is being assigned to this death-trap and watching the depraved and filthy things the natives do. And trying to be polite to them even when they're killing my friends, and those Nayord bombers up there with their hands on the triggers. One of those bombardiers is going to start thinking about home and about the cobalt bombs down here, and he's going to press that button, deadline or no deadline. Sit down, Fossil. Sit down and take a rest. There was sympathy in Brian's voice, but also the firmness of an order. Fossil swayed for a second longer, then collapsed. He sat with his cheek against the window, eyes closed. A pulse throbbed visibly in his temple and his lips worked. He had been under too much tension for too long a time. This was the atmosphere that hung heavily in the air at the CRF building when they arrived. Despair and defeat. The doctor was the only one who didn't share this mood as he bustled Leah off to the clinic with prompt efficiency. He obviously had enough patience to keep his mind occupied. With the others, the feeling of depression was unmistakable. From the instant they had driven through the automatic garage door, Brian had swum in this miasma of defeat. It was omnipresent and hard to ignore. As soon as he had eaten, he went with Fossil into what was to have been Egil's office. Through the transparent walls he could see the staff packing the records, crating them for shipment. Fossil seemed less nervous now that he was no longer in command. Brian rejected any idea he had of letting the man know that he himself was only a novice in the Foundation. He was going to need all the authority he could muster, since they would undoubtedly hate him for what he was going to do. Better take notes of this fossil, and have it typed. I'll sign it." The printed word always carried more weight. All preparations for leaving are to be stopped at once. Records are to be returned to the files. We are going to stay here just as long as we have clearance from the Nyorders. If this operation is unsuccessful, we will all leave together when the time expires. We will take whatever personal baggage we can carry by hand. Everything else stays here. Perhaps you don't realize we are here to save a planet, not file cabinets full of papers." Out of the corner of his eye he saw Fossil flush with anger. As soon as that is typed, bring it back, and all the reports as to what has been accomplished on this project. That will be all for now. Fossil stamped out, and a minute later Brian saw the shocked, angry looks from the workers in the outer office. Turning his back to them, he opened the drawers in the desk, one after another. The top drawer was empty, except for a sealed envelope. It was addressed to Winner Igil. Brian looked at it thoughtfully, then ripped it open. The letter inside was handwritten. Igil, I've had the official word that you are on the way to relieve me, and I am forced to admit I feel only an intense satisfaction. You've had the experience on these outlaw planets and can get along with the odd types. 
I have been specializing in research for the last twenty years, and the only reason I was appointed planetary supervisor in Nyord was because of the observation and application facilities. I'm the research type, not the office type. No one has ever denied that. You're going to have trouble with the staff, so you had better realize that they are all compulsory volunteers. Half are clerical people from my staff. The others are a mixed bag of whoever was close enough to be pulled in on this crash assignment. It developed so fast we never saw it coming. And I'm afraid we've done little or nothing to stop it. We can't get access to the natives here, not in the slightest. It's frightening. They don't fit. I've done Poisson distributions on a dozen different factors and none of them can be equated. The Pareto extrapolations don't work. Our field men can't even talk to the natives and two have been killed trying. The ruling class is unapproachable and the rest just keep their mouths shut and walk away. I'm going to take a chance and try to talk to Lig Magti. Perhaps I can make him see sense. I doubt if it will work and there is a chance he will try violence with me. The nobility here are very prone to violence. If I get back all right, you won't see this note. Otherwise, goodbye, Igil. Try to do a better job than I did. Aston Merv. P.S. There is a problem with the staff. They are supposed to be saviors, but without exception, they all loathe the Dissons. I'm afraid I do too. Brian ticked off the relevant points in the letter. He had to find some way of discovering what Pareto extrapolations were, without uncovering his own lack of knowledge. The staff would vanish in five minutes if they knew how new he was at the job. Poisson distribution made more sense. It was used in physics as the unchanging probability of an event that would be true at all times, such as the number of particles that would be given off by a lump of radioactive matter during a short period. From the way Merv used it in his letter, it looked as if the Societics people had found measurable applications in societies and groups, at least on other planets. None of the rules seemed to be working on Dis. Igil had admitted that, and Merv's death had proved it. Brian wondered who this Lig Magti was who appeared to have killed Merv. A forced cough broke through Brian's concentration, and he realized that Fossil had been standing in front of his desk for some minutes. Brian looked up and mopped perspiration from his face. "'Your air-conditioner seems to be out of order,' Fossil said. Should I have the mechanic look at it? There's nothing wrong with the machine. I'm just adapting to Dis's climate. What else do you want, Fossil?" The assistant had a doubting look that he didn't succeed in hiding. He also had trouble believing the literal truth. He placed a small stack of file folders on the desk. These are the reports to date, everything we have uncovered about the Dissons. It's not very much. But considering the antisocial attitudes on this lousy world, it is the best we could do. A sudden thought hit him, and his eyes narrowed slyly. It can't be helped, but some of the staff have been wondering out loud about the native that contacted us. How did you get him to help you? We've never gotten to first base with these people, and as soon as you land, you have one working for you. You can't stop people from thinking about it, you being a newcomer and a stranger. After all, it looks a little odd." He broke off in mid-sentence as Brian looked at him in cold fury. "'I can't stop people from thinking about it, 
but I can't stop them from talking. Our job is to contact the Dissons and stop this suicidal war. I have done more in one day than you all have done since you arrived. I have accomplished this because I am better at my work than the rest of you. That is all the information any of you are going to receive. You are dismissed." White with anger, Fossil turned on his heel and stamped out, to spread the word about what a slave-driver the new director was. They would then all hate him passionately, which was just the way he wanted it. He couldn't risk exposure as the tyro he was, and perhaps a new emotion, other than disgust and defeat, might jar them into a little action. They certainly couldn't do any worse than they had been doing. It was a tremendous amount of responsibility. For the first time since setting foot on this barbaric planet, Brian had time to stop and think. He was taking an awful lot upon himself. He knew nothing about this world, nor about the powers involved in the conflict. Here he sat, pretending to be in charge of an organization he had first heard about only a few weeks earlier. It was a frightening situation. Should he slide out from under? There was just one possible answer, and that was no. Until he found someone else who could do better, he seemed to be the one best suited for the job, and Idril's opinion had to count for something. Brian had felt the surety of the man's conviction that Brian was the only one who might possibly succeed in this difficult spot. Let it go at that. If he had any qualms, it would be best to put them behind him. Aside from everything else, there was a primary bit of loyalty involved. Igil had been an Anvarian and a winner. Maybe it was a provincial attitude to hold in this big universe, Anvar was certainly far enough away from here, but honor is very important to a man who must stand alone. He had a debt to Igil, and he was going to pay it off. Once the decision had been made, he felt easier. There was an intercom on the desk in front of him, and he leaned with a heavy thumb on the button labeled Fossil. Yes, even through the speaker the man's voice was cold with ill-concealed hatred. Who is Lig Magti, and did the former director ever return from seeing him? Magti is a title that means roughly noble or lord. Lig Magti is the local overlord. He has an ugly stone heap of a building just outside the city. He seems to be the mouthpiece for the group of Magter that are pushing this idiotic war. As to your second question, I have to answer yes and no. We found Director Merv's head outside the door next morning with all the skin gone. We knew who it was because the doctor identified the bridgework in his mouth. Do you understand? All pretense of control had vanished, and Fossil almost shrieked the last words. They were all close to cracking up, if he was any example. Brian broke in quickly. That will be all, Fossil. Just get word to the doctor that I would like to see him as soon as I can. He broke the connection and opened the first of the folders. By the time the doctor called, he had skimmed the reports and was reading the relevant ones in greater detail. Putting on his warm coat, he went through the outer office. The few workers still on duty turned their backs in frigid silence. Dr. Stein had a pink and shiny bald head that rose above a thick black beard. Brian had liked him at once. Anyone with enough firmness of mind to keep a beard in this climate was a pleasant exception after what he had met so far. "'How's the new patient, doctor?' 
Stein combed his beard with stubby fingers before answering. Diagnosis? Heat syncope. Prognosis? Complete recovery. Condition fair, considering the dehydration and extensive sunburn. I've treated the burns, and a saline drip has taken care of the other. She just missed going into heat shock. I have her under sedation now. I'd like to have her up and helping me tomorrow morning. Could she do this, with stimulants or drugs? She could, but I don't like it. There might be side factors, perhaps long-standing debilitation. It's a chance. A chance we will have to take. In less than seventy hours this planet is due for destruction. In attempting to avert that tragedy I'm expendable, as is everyone else here. Agreed? The doctor grunted deep in his beard and looked Brian's immense frame up and down. Agreed, he said almost happily. It is a distinct pleasure to see something beside black defeat around here. I'll go along with you. Well, you can help me right now. I checked the personnel roster and discovered that out of the twenty-eight people working here there isn't a physical scientist of any kind other than yourself. A scruffy bunch of button-pushers and theoreticians. Not worth a damn for field-work, the whole bunch of them." The doctor towed the floor-switch on a waste-receptacle and spat into it with feeling. "'Then I'm going to depend on you for some straight answers,' Brian said. This is an unstandard operation, and the standard techniques just don't begin to make sense. Even Poisson distributions and Pareto extrapolations don't apply here." Stein nodded agreement, and Brian relaxed a bit. He had just relieved himself of his entire knowledge of societics, and it had sounded authentic. "'The more I look at it, the more I believe that this is a physical problem something to do with the exotic and massive adjustments the Dissons have made to this hellish environment. Could this tie up in any way with their absolutely suicidal attitude towards the cobalt bombs?" Could it? Could it? Dr. Stein paced the floor rapidly on his stocky legs, twining his fingers behind his back. You are bloody well right it could. Someone is thinking at last and not just punching bloody numbers into a machine and sitting and scratching his behind while waiting for the screen to light up with the answers. Do you know how Dissons exist?" Brian shook his head. The fools here think it disgusting, but I call it fascinating. They have found ways to join a symbiotic relationship with the life-forms on this planet, even a parasitic relationship. You must realize that living organisms will do anything to survive. Castaways at sea will drink their own urine in their need for water. Disgust at this is only the attitude of the overprotected, who have never experienced extreme thirst or hunger. Well, here on Dis you have a planet of castaways." Stein opened the door of the pharmacy. This talk of thirst makes me dry. With economically efficient motions he poured grain alcohol into a beaker thinned it with distilled water and flavored it with some crystals from a bottle. He filled two glasses and handed Brian one. It didn't taste bad at all. What do you mean by parasitic, doctor? Aren't we all parasites of the lower life-forms? Meat animals, vegetables and such? No, no, you missed the point. I speak of parasitic in the exact meaning of the word. 
you must realize that, to a biologist, there is no real difference between parasitism, symbiosis, mutualism, biintergacy, commensalism—" "'Stop, stop,' Brian said. "'Those are just meaningless sounds to me.' "'If that is what makes this planet tick, I'm beginning to see why the rest of the staff has that lost feeling.' "'It is just a matter of degree of the same thing. Look, you have a kind of crustacean living in the lakes here very much like an ordinary crab. It has large claws in which it holds anemones, tentacled sea animals with no power of motion. The crustacean waves these around to gather food, and eats the pieces they capture that are too big for them. This is biintergacy, two creatures living and working together, yet each capable of existing alone. Now this same crustacean has a parasite living under its shell a degenerated form of a snail that has lost all powers of movement, a true parasite that takes food from its host's body and gives nothing in return. Inside this snail's gut there is a protozoan that lives off the snail's ingested food. Yet this little organism is not a parasite, as you might think at first, but a symbiote. It takes food from the snail, but at the same time it secretes a chemical that aids the snail's digestion of the food. Do you get the picture? All these life-forms exist in a complicated interdependence." Brian frowned in concentration, sipping at the drink. It's making some kind of sense now. Symbiosis, parasitism, and all the rest are just ways of describing variations of the same basic process of living together. And there is probably a grading and shading between some of these that make the exact relationship hard to define. Existence is so difficult on this world that the competing forms have almost died out. There are still a few left, preying off the others. It was the cooperating and interdependent life-forms that really won out in the race for survival. I say life-forms with intent. The creatures here are mostly a mixture of plant and animal, like the lichens you have elsewhere. The Dissons have a creature they call a Vedi, that they use for water when traveling. It has rudimentary powers of motion from its animal part, yet uses photosynthesis and stores water like a plant. When the Dissons drink from it, the thing taps their bloodstreams for food elements. I know, Brian said wryly. I drank from one. You can see my scars. I'm beginning to comprehend how the Dissons fit into the physical pattern of their world, and I realize it must have all kinds of psychological effects on them. Do you think this has any effect on their social organization? An important one. But maybe I'm making too many suppositions now. Perhaps your researchers upstairs can tell you better. After all, this is their field." Breen had studied the reports on the social setup and not one word of them made sense. They were a solid maze of unknown symbols and cryptic charts. Please continue, doctor, he insisted. The societics reports are valueless so far. There are factors missing. You are the only one I have talked to so far who can give me any intelligent reports or answers." All right, then. Be it on your own head. The way I see it, you've got no society here at all, just a bunch of rugged individualists, each one for himself, getting nourishment from the other life-forms of the planet. If they have a society, it is oriented towards the rest of the planetary life, instead of towards other human beings. 
perhaps that's why your figures don't make sense. They are set up for the human societies. In their relations with each other, these people are completely different. What about the Magter, the upper-class types who build castles and are causing all this trouble? I have no explanation, Dr. Stein admitted. My theories hold water and seem logical enough up to this point, but the Magter are the exception, and I have no idea why. They are completely different from the rest of the Dissents. Argumentative, bloodthirsty, looking for planetary conquest instead of peace. They aren't rulers, not in the real sense. They hold power because nobody else wants it. They grant mining concessions to off-worlders because they are the only ones with a sense of property. Maybe I'm going out on a limb, but if you can find out why they are so different, you may be on to the clue to our difficulties." For the first time since his arrival, Brian began to feel a touch of enthusiasm, plus a sense of the remote possibility that there might even be a solution to the deadly problem. He drained his glass and stood up. I hope you'll wake your patient early, doctor. You might be as interested in talking to her as I am. If what you told me is true, she could well be our key to the answer. She is Professor Leah Maurice, and she is just out from Earth with degrees in exobiology and anthropology, and has a head stuffed with vital facts." "'Wonderful,' Stein said. "'I shall take care of the head, not only because it is so pretty, but because of its knowledge. Though we totter on the edge of atomic destruction, I have a strange feeling of optimism for the first time since I landed on this planet. End of chapter 8